Happy Easter, all of you. Happy Easter to those of you joining us in Quakertown. It's great to have you with us this morning. Well, have you ever noticed that Easter is surrounded by beautiful things? For example, honey-baked ham, right? Stocks Easter egg cake. Easter baskets full of candy. I could do without those marshmallow peeps and the jelly beans that get stuck in your teeth. Um, lots of wonderful food. And then there are flowers everywhere, right? I'm not, I'm not really a pastel kind of guy, at least in clothing. But it is great to look out and see forsythias and hyacinths and daffodils and new grass coming that's light green. We're just surrounded with beauty. Add to that. Sports begin, right? At least the summer sports. Baseball is back in play. The Phillies won two in a row, by the way. Uh, we'll go for three today. The Masters kicks off the golf season. Brooksy is uh, way ahead. I'm probably going to win this thing today. But have you also noticed that even though Easter is surrounded with beautiful things, Easter also reminds us that most things are broken. Have you ever noticed for example, do you watch the news and see broken things? Natural disasters, tornadoes whipping through large portions of the country, murder, violence, hatred, racism, people standing against each other in a polarized way. Easter is surrounded by beauty. And Easter reminds us that almost everything's broken. But sometimes the most painful thing about the brokenness that we are reminded of is it reminds us that the real brokenness is inside, isn't it? The brokenness on the outside reminds us that we're broken on the inside. Every one of us in this room knows something about broken relationship, broken hearts, broken promises, broken dreams. Easter surrounded by beauty but it reminds us of brokenness. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world does Easter have to do with brokenness and beauty? It has everything to do with it. You see, Easter reminds us that what's broken can be restored to beauty again. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. Now, just to give you some hooks to hang things on, we're gonna talk about brokenness to beauty by answering four questions. We won't make them too long, answering four questions. All right, here they go. Question number one, what happened? Question number two, why did it happen? Who did it happen to? And how can it happen for us? Four simple questions. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, turn to Mark 16. I'm going to read the first eight verses to remind us what happened. You already heard these verses at the beginning of the service, but I could tell most of you weren't paying attention. So I'm going to read them again. Eight verses. Here we go. What happened? See if you can answer the question. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of them into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So what happened? 
Resurrection happened. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, well, they used to believe that nonsense back then, but we know better today. Dead people don't come back to life unless you, unless you think of zombies or Svengoolie on Saturday nights. And dead people don't come back to life. But they weren't expecting it either. Did you notice when I read, Jesus um, had said numerous times, and you can go back and read more. We've been working our way through Mark since January. So if you've been traveling with us, you've noticed that numerous times Jesus said, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me, but three days after that, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, you may not have been here for those weeks, and that's fine. You need to know that repeatedly throughout his life, Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to come back after three days. Three days. Three days. It's Easter morning, the third day. <laughs> Did you notice? No one is waiting at the tomb to welcome him back. All the male disciples can't be found. A few women show up, but they don't show up to welcome Jesus. They show up to permanently embalm his body for burial. <clears throat> no one expected him to do it. No one. You see, it's a misnomer to think, oh, we know better, but they expected that dead people come back to life. That's not true. No one expected it. And yet, in just a short period of time, dozens of people believe, then hundreds of people believe, then thousands of people believe, and today millions, over a billion people believe that Jesus was killed on a Friday, <clears throat> rose again on that first Easter. Why do they believe that? Because the body could not be found, and he appeared to dozens and hundreds of people after he was killed. What happened? The resurrection happened. And the proofs are basically insurmountable. It's going to take more belief and more faith for you to believe that Jesus is still dead than to believe he came back. What happened? Resurrection. Well, that leads to our second question. Why? Well, you have to understand that the why of Jesus' resurrection really takes us back to his death because in order to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. And so Jesus was killed on a Friday, rose again on Sunday. Well, why did Jesus die? Did you ever think about that? In our day, most people kind of respect Jesus and they say things like this. Oh, he was a good teacher. He really loved people. He performed miracles. He healed people. That was true in Jesus' day too. People respected him. People honored him. Well, why did he die? He didn't die in natural causes. He didn't die of a heart attack, didn't have cancer, didn't have diabetes. He didn't die of, of some kind of ailment. Jesus was executed. He was killed. Why, if somebody is respected and honored, kind of lifted up and admired as a healer, miracle worker, great teacher, why would they kill him? It wasn't for what he did. It was for what he claimed. You see, he claimed to be the king and 
Rome already had instituted a king, and if you have a king, and Rome's kind of the authority behind it, and you claim to be a king, you got a little bit of a problem. Not only that, Jesus claimed to be the savior promised by the Old Testament prophets, but he wasn't lining up with the expectation of the Jewish leaders. <clears throat> and so he's got a problem with the Jewish leaders, he's got a problem with the Roman authorities, and we've got a problem. But in the verses that we read in Mark, we discover the reason that Jesus died. So here's one that I read earlier. Uh, let me read it to you again. If you put it up there, I'll read it to you. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what it says. There it is. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told. Now, here's what you have to know. The angel appears to the women at the tomb and says, go tell his disciples and Peter, Jesus is going ahead of them into Galilee. He's going to meet you there. Notice he did not say, tell that group of spineless, no backburn, backstabbing, terrible guys that wait till I see them again, I'm going to get them. He didn't say that. What's he say? I'll paraphrase. Tell my followers that even though they turned their backs on me and even though they denied me and ran away, you tell them I welcome them back because Easter and Good Friday mean forgiveness is possible. And you know what the story is there? Grace. But do you want to see grace with a capital G, not just a small g? It's in two little words in that verse that you may have missed. Here it is. And Peter, right? Now you may think, why does and Peter have a significant grace mark? I'll tell you why. Peter was the one of the disciples that actually denied that he knew Jesus. A little slave girl approaches when he's warming himself by the fire and she says, I think you're one of his followers. And Peter says, no, 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 not me. Calls down curses on himself. So when the angel says, tell the disciples to come and meet me in Galilee, I'm guessing when the women got back there and the women said, hey, Jesus said, come and meet him in Galilee, Peter would probably have thought, yeah, not me. None of the other guys denied him. None of the other guys turned their backs on him. None of the other guys sold him out the way I did. And yet, the angel specifically says, tell the disciples and Peter that I want to meet them in Galilee. Forgiveness is possible. My death and re resurrection make forgiveness possible. Now, how does the resurrection and the death of Christ go together. And let me explain it like this. How many of you, I'm going to test how old you are. How many of you remember when you used to pay cash for gas? You remember that? You can't do it now. You can't carry that much cash with you, right? Uh, so here, here's how it works though. We, I pull up to Wawa, right? And uh, I've timed this thing perfectly. I put my card in, turn around, open my gas tank, unscrew the cap, put it there. And when I turn around, many times the machine will stay still processing. And I stand there, and after a little while, I get nervous. And I think to myself, what did Kim put on this card that it's going to get declined? I've already got the nozzle in the thing, and I'm not going to buy the gas. And eventually, it'll say, take out your card. You're good to go. And I filled the car with gas. Um, good Friday, Christ's crucifixion, is when the debt was paid and resurrection morning was when the pump says, approved. 
You see, the resurrection is God approves of the payment that Jesus made. Payment was made on Friday. The approval comes on Sunday. They go together. So why did Jesus die? Jesus died to make forgiveness possible. But not just forgiveness possible. Access is also available. Now, um, I, I want to read a, one verse from Mark 15, the chapter before. Now, this is right at the cross, right? Jesus just breathed his last, and here's what we read, the last part of what's up there. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, as if Mark wants to make sure we know who's ripping the curtain, right, from top to bottom. Like, what's up with the curtain? What's behind the curtain? Uh, well, you have to know a little bit about temple architecture. Sorry about that. Uh, here's how temple architecture worked. The temple was really a series of barricades, Certain groups of people were allowed this far, other groups that far, but only the most holy person, high priest, on the most holy day, Yom Kippur, in the most holy way with a sacrifice could enter the most holy place. This is the curtain that surrounded that holy place, which meant access is denied. No one is allowed in unless a sacrifice is given. But what happens when Jesus dies? The curtain is ripped to show us that access is now available. So what does Easter mean? Forgiveness is possible. Access is available. That's the story of Easter. That's the story of Good Friday. That's the story where the pieces come together and fit together. And it's a grace deal from beginning to end. And you need to know, as an American, that grace thing doesn't sit too well with us. Because we've been trained ever since we're born that you only get what you pay for in this life, right? No free lunches for me. We train our little kids to be ladder climbers from the get-go, right? And we talk to our friends and say, oh, my child was potty trained by the time he was six months old. Mine was two, uh, right? And then we put their little hands on the first rung and we take them to nursery school and the real competition of ladder climbing begins. My daughter's the best finger painter in the kindergarten. My son can run faster and do forward rolls better than anybody else. And then you go to school, you go to college, and we learn to climb a little better, right? And now you've got to get a good degree from a good school, and you go to the good school so you can get a good job, and you get a good job, and you climb the ladder further. You need to make the most money. You need to climb the corporate ladder. And we use that terminology all the time. And here's what happens. We take that ladder climbing mentality. Do it yourself persevere, work hard. You're going to make it if you climb hard enough. And we take that mentality, slide it over into our spiritual lives, and we think that getting connected with God, forgiveness and accessibility come through climbing the ladder. And we think we've got to put our hands on this spiritual ladder and we've got to start climbing and we climb by doing good, and we climb by turning over a new leaf, and we go to a new program, and we go to more church events, and we say our prayers harder, and we read the Bible more, and we join more small groups, and we think in some way we're climbing. The, the gospel is opposed to all that. The gospel says it's a grace deal. Jesus paid what we owed, and the approval comes on Easter morning. It's not our climbing. It's Jesus climbing that pays our way. All we need to do, we need to do, is to accept his climbing for us. Forgiveness is possible. Access is available. Well, two questions down, two to go. Who? Um, I need to tell you, I had a hard time this week thinking about who. Because there are a lot of people, a lot of different groups show up 
in Mark 15 and 16. Uh, you don't have anything to do for the next couple of hours, do you? Uh, well, I'm not going to walk you through all of them. I'm not going to look at the women, even though we kind of read their story and that's how we started. But you need to understand, back in Jesus' day, women were considered second class and their testimony was not going to be valid. But Jesus validates them by appearing first to them and he sends the angel to the women to go back and tell the men. At that point, if they fail in communicating the message, there are no believers. It's dependent on the women. Jesus did that. We're not going to talk about um, all the mockers that surround the cross, yelling accusations at Jesus, and the irony in those comments is just um, deep. You need to go and read that. I don't want to talk too much about Joseph of Arimathea. He shows up. Now, you got to understand, Joseph is most likely a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, right? I mean, that's, that's like the Supreme Court in the religious sense back then. Joseph puts his reputation and his life on the line. Remember, Jesus had just been executed by the Romans for claiming to be king, and he already had a king. Joseph now and goes and asks Pilate for Jesus' body. If he's viewed as a sympathizer with this, with this renegade who was just executed, not only his reputation within Judaism, but his life may be threatened. He takes the body and puts it in his tomb. We're not going to talk about him either. I do want to talk about the centurion. Now you got to understand, this guy was a Roman. The centurion was not you know, a high-ranking official in the Roman army. This guy came up through the ranks which meant he was a hardened, difficult, probably not real religious guy. He's part of the execution crew. He's part of the crew that nails Jesus to the cross and watches him die. But that would have been nothing new to him. As a centurion, he probably had seen dozens of people die, many of them at the end of his own sword. He's not a softy. He's used to this. But notice what he says. When the centurion who stood in front of Jesus saw how he died. Now, listen to what the centurion says. Surely, this man was the son of God. Now, you got to remember how Mark kind of put the gospel together. Can I remind you of the first verse in Mark's gospel? The very first verse in Mark's gospel is this. I'm going to tell you the good news the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And as you read through Mark, who announces that Jesus is the Messiah? That's going to be Peter. And he doesn't get it exactly right. But he understands, yeah, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Who is it that announces Jesus is the Son of God? It's the centurion. The high watermark of Mark's gospel is on the lips of a Roman centurion. Probably not religious at all. If he was religious, he would have been a, an idolater. He wouldn't have been a Christ follower or a Jew at all. Surely, he was the son of God. Isn't it interesting that the way Mark paints the picture, the curtain is torn open, so now access is available. The curtain's ripped. And according to Mark's gospel, the first one through the curtain is the Roman centurion, the first one. You know what that cast of characters reminds me of? Here's what it reminds us of. 
Those that are outcast, despised, and rejected. Those that once mocked and ridiculed. Those that are wealthy and religious. Those that are idolaters and are far from being religious at all. They are all welcome. Who can come? All can come. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. Access is available because it's a grace deal. It's not a performance deal. It's not a merit deal. It's a Jesus paid deal. Well, that brings us to one last question then. How? How's that happen? How do you experience that forgiveness? How do you access that access? How does it work? Um, well, let me tell you a mistake almost all people make. Here's a mistake that all, and I know many of you in this room have already made it. Some of you may be making it right now. If you sense your brokenness, and maybe you've been thinking about that since we started. Maybe you're experiencing your emotional brokenness now. Things aren't right and you're not quite sure why. Maybe you're sensing relational brokenness. Your family has a major rift in it and you've tried, but you can't repair it. Maybe there's um, heartbreak in your life. Maybe there's physical brokenness and you're more in touch with your physical frailties and ailments than ever before. But we all sit here broken this morning, right? But the Bible would tell us our major problem with brokenness is our spiritual brokenness. That's the center and the core, the seed of all of the other brokenness. Here's the mistake we all make. When we begin to feel that brokenness, when we begin to experience it, we set out for self-improvement. We're gonna try harder. We're gonna turn over a new leaf. We're gonna try a new program. We're gonna buy a new book. We're gonna, and so we try to improve ourselves. And that's the exact opposite thing that's going to heal the brokenness. Brokenness is not going to be healed by self-improvement. It's not gonna be healed by a new discipline regimen. We all try self-improvement, turning over a new leaf, trying harder to be righteous. It's not how it works. It's a grace deal, not a performance deal. So what do you have to do? Two things. Acknowledge your brokenness. And sometimes that's the hardest thing in the world to do, right? We like to point out other people's brokenness. Oh, look at, boy, I'm glad I'm not in that situation. But we don't like to, to look at the brokenness in our lives and the brokenness that we've caused. But if you're ever going to get free, if you're ever going to experience Easter, the forgiveness and the access that Easter brings, you're going to have to acknowledge the brokenness. And then accept the restoration. And it's not by turning over a new leaf. It's not by ladder climbing. It's not by climbing on the treadmill. The restoration comes by grace. You acknowledge your brokenness and you accept the restoration that only Jesus provides through his death and resurrection. A number of months ago, uh, I was reading an article in Christianity Today, CT. And it was an article in there about art. And I kind of, I'm not much of an art guy, right? I know it's hard for you to tell that, but. So I kind of blew by this art about this Japanese artist. And, but somehow my, my mind was drawn back to the picture. And um, the artist was talking about the Japanese art form of kintsuji. Kintsuji. Are you familiar with kintsuji? Here's what kintsuji is. Kintsuji is a Japanese art form that's actually very expensive to purchase, right? 
Here's what happens. A piece of pottery, a piece of porcelain, a piece of something is broken, is shattered, either dropped on a table, thrown in the floor, it's broken. But that's not the end, that's only the beginning. Then the artist takes the pieces, the shards, the little pieces of the broken pottery and welds them, fuses them back together. But he or she fuses them back together with gold. And so there you see the last picture. Kintsuji, the final restored product, infinitely more valuable than the piece of porcelain that started the process. Can I tell you something? That's how the gospel works. The gospel works like this. Sin has brought about brokenness in this world out of the beauty that God made. Sin has brought brokenness in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our world. But the gospel's about the restoration business. And Jesus comes, and through his death and resurrection, he supplies the gold that allows forgiveness to be possible and access to be available. And as we acknowledge and accept, we can become much more valuable after the fact than the brokenness before the fact. That's the gospel, friends. That's available to you. Do you have the guts to admit your brokenness? To accept the gracious restoration that comes only through the gospel. All you have to do is talk to Jesus about that. That's what Good Friday, that's what Easter are all about. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks, not just for the miracle of Easter, the miracle of the resurrection, we give thanks for the millions and millions of miracles that have happened because of Easter. The millions and millions of restorations that are in this world and hundreds in this room. Lord, we confess that sin has broken our lives, our families, our communities, and our world. But Father, the gospel is all about restoration. The gospel is about Jesus graciously restoring the pieces. But it's counterintuitive how that works. It's not by turning over a new leaf, not by trying harder, not by turning a, trying to a new improvement plan. It comes by admitting our brokenness, accepting the Good Friday and Easter gift from our Savior. If you've never done that, I can't think of a better time than this Easter morning to admit and accept. Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for the restorations we see around us and for those that are yet to come. We pray in your name, amen.